0: Thank you, brother Mike, instrumentalist. Thank you for that. I don't know about you, but th- those moments of corporate worship and praise—they really, really help me. Yeah, they help me on a midweek, especially Wednesdays. Um, some say that preachers only work a couple days a week—Sundays and Wednesdays. Uh, it's not true, but they are the longest days, and so um, I, I do. I, I don't just sympathize for you that work all day and then come straight to church, I can empathize with that because these are 14-hour days uh, for me. And, and Wednesdays, it's, it's a ton of, of uh, prep work for Sunday. And uh, hopefully I've already got Wednesday's message done before Wednesday comes. But it's a lot of counseling that I do on Wednesdays, some deacons and trustees, financial meetings, and other things like that that take place. And then sometimes, honestly, I just rush in here. And, and it's, it's all I can do to, to get in here in time for the singing to start um, and with my, my mind in the right place. And there's a lot that can happen between my office and coming right in that front road that determines whether my mind's in the right place. Um, but, but I say that because, because I, know, I know what you're facing on a weekly basis. When you come into this place, it's different than a Sunday. We've been we've been we've been hard at work all day long. And so to come into this place, that's why I think we need some corporate singing Amen. before I just jump up here and get in the word. Because because it doesn't just prepare our hearts for the preaching that, that that's that's wonderful. But I think really it, it positions us and situates our hearts to be sensitive to the presence of God. And, and, and we learned last week how important it is for us to be regularly adjusted and positioned in worship to be in God's presence. Like it literally, a a moment in God's presence can change our entire perspective. If you weren't here last week to listen to the study of Psalm 73, you need to go back and listen to that. Because that passage is incredibly powerful for your everyday life. Um, And so that's a long way of saying I think we ought to keep singing on Wednesday night. Um, but it's also a pastoral moment to tell you to take it serious. Because you need it and I need it. And uh, it can really help us. Turn to Psalm 74 if you're not there already. Psalm 74. We've got some announcements here on the pulpit. I, I'll cover after afterwards. I think it's best to jump into the message right away. We're studying the Psalms of Asaph. Two weeks ago we we really got into the... The weeds a little bit of who Asaph was and some historical data that hopefully would give him credibility in your mind. He was the worship leader in the temple. He was devoted to a lifestyle of worship. Not a moment of worship every Sunday, but literally a moment-by-moment worship through life. And then we started with Psalm 73 and talked about worship and perspective. Now we're on Psalm 74 and we're going to be talking about this. Worship and grief. Worship and grief. The Bible word for grief is the word lament. That's where we get the the book Lamentations. It's a book of lamenting. The word lament means to express sorrow. It means to cry out in grief. I, I think in our society today, we don't seem to have much room for that sort of thing in our worship. Especially our corporate worship. In our corporate worship today, it seems to be as though we're we're intent on staying positive and liked and happy. In our churches today, we have pastors that will try to get their people to clap on the two and four. Instead of the one and three. How dare they? That is not what church is about. We do everything, we had to be here on Sunday morning to get that, but we we do everything we can, I think, to keep church upbeat and positive. And I think think we should, to a regard, I I mean, we live in a negative world all week long. We want to think of church, we do, as joyful and positive and uplifting and, and inspirational. But a byproduct of that extreme is that church with lament not accepted doesn't feel like church it's not what church should be it certainly doesn't market well I I call the 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 church market in which we live churchianity it's difficult to see how grief can play into that how it can be anything in the church world except a downer interestingly though the Hebrews who this hymn book called psalm was written to they didn't have that hang up in their corporate worship By some estimates, as much as one third of the Psalms are designated as lament or grief. One third. So much of their worship was expressed through their grief. And that's just in the book of Psalms. Add in the entire book of Lamentations, a book of lamenting. Add in major sections of the book of Jeremiah, who, who we call the weeping prophet. Add the entire book of Job in there. And we see that God certainly doesn't look down upon our grief or our lament. So my question is, why is there so much grief given to us in Scripture? Well, I think there's a lot of grief in Scripture because there's a lot of suffering in life. Nobody likes to suffer because nobody likes pain. John Kitchen said, pain is the needle that pierces the dream bubble of life as we'd like to believe it is. And isn't that true? Pain tends to burst the bubble of comfort and burst the bubble of convenience that we have all come to crave in our life. But isn't that totally opposite of how Jesus Christ said his followers would experience life? He looked at his first disciples and he said, Men, if the world hates me, they're going to hate you. If I offend them, you're going to offend them. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If you're doing it right, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to face opposition, not to mention the opposition of Satan in our life. When Christ talked about following him, he talked about things like denying yourself. Things like picking up your cross. Things like forsaking all to follow him. I mean, the symbol that designates you as a follower of Christ is not a dove. Could have been, but he didn't choose a dove that represents peace. He didn't choose a rainbow that, that, that would have represented his promises, at least in that day. He chose a cross. Two pieces of wooden beams put together that at the end of the day, had they served their purpose, they would be covered and stained with blood. That's the symbol he chose for a follower of Christ. So as difficult as it is to realize, watch, living in this present world and following God means you will experience pain. That means if you're to live your life as worship, then you are going to have to live some of your life worshiping through grief. Embracing grief. That brings up the question, how are we to grieve? I mean, seriously, have you ever been to a school to learn how to grieve? Do they have grieving classes? They might have some grieving therapy groups. But do they, do, do you enroll in a grief class? Because last time I checked the tragedies of life, they don't warn you that they're coming most of the time. They're thrust upon you and you don't have time to say, hold on, can I go get a semester of grief class? And if you have been through some grief, it's not like you've mastered how to grieve because every difficult situation has its own nuance to it. Just because you've learned how to grieve through a miscarriage doesn't mean that you'll learn how to grieve through a layoff. Every difficulty has its own little flavor to it. And so we never truly learn how to grieve, it seems like. So how do you do it well? I I would say that that's my main burden tonight. And it would be in this statement and then we'll go to work on it. You grieve well when you grieve as worship. If you're like me, you've never put grief in the same exact sentence as worship. You've never thought that they go together, but they do, seeing that a third of the Psalms are laments, and the Psalms were literally the hymn book for temple worship. So I want to show you through Psalm 74 how you can worshiply grieve. Now some of you, this is going to hit you right where you're at. Some of you are in a season of grief. But for others, this is going to prepare you for a season of grief that you don't even know is ahead of you. So I'd remind you that though this might not hit you right where you're at now, and life is great as you know it, and there's very little, if any, grief in your life, understand that life can literally change with one phone call. And that's why you listen now for something you inevitably face later. Take notes. I think this will help you. Four ways that we grieve well when we grieve as worship. Number one, Asaph teaches us, ask your questions. Now I want to reason you. We're going to get in the text in a little bit, but I want to reason with you. What is the first thing we're inclined to do when we experience grief? We ask why. If not out loud, we ask it in our heart. God, why have you allowed this to happen? And I want you to consider for a moment. That's a very natural question. The word why was unlikely the first word that you learned to say as a child, but it might have been the first question you learned to ask. Have you ever been around a child that's in the phase of asking why about everything? It's natural, but it's also annoying. Questioning God during grief is kind of a reflex of the human being. Like, like when we sprained an ankle, you ever sprained an ankle? Our, our body's reflex is to rush fluids to that area. And what happens? It causes swelling. That's a reflex. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Questions then, watch, are like the soul's natural reflex to pain. Asking why is how you're hardwired. It's in your DNA. It's your default question. In fact, you look at the book of Job. They say that the question why in that book appears around 25 times. I would say that the story of Job's testing and him asking why through the loss of his home and his children and his possessions and his wealth and his health. I think they remind us that why is the first and greatest question of the suffering soul. That's why John Kitchen writes and says this, the whys of biblical lament exist to aid us in transforming our whys into worship. Follow me. Just because you question God during a hard time doesn't always mean you're angry with God. Doesn't always mean you're bitter with God. I don't think asking why has to always translate into a negative response. It can actually lead us to a very worshipful conversation with our Savior. It can lead us to a very healthy uh, moment of worship that, that in turn is going to be a cure for our soul. Now, where do I get all of those thoughts? Look at verse number one. Look at what he asked first. Oh, God, why? Why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? He's saying, God, why have you forsaken us? Now, now Asaph, like us, knows God well enough to understand that He will never leave us or forsake us. But there are some situations, are there not, in life that leave us feeling like God has cast us off, even though we know in our head He hasn't. That's precisely where our grief leads us sometimes. Watch, feeling something in our physical heart that our spiritual heart is telling us that's not true. It's exactly what happened in Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Asaph felt a certain way, but he could not go any farther feeling that way because his spiritual heart said, Asaph, that's not right. But that doesn't deny the very real feeling. Asaph asked God also there, why did thine find anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? In other words, God, we're your people. We're your chosen people. And so why are we the victim of your judgment? God, why are you allowing... Bad things to happen to your people. Why are you allowing bad things to happen to good people? Isn't that a common question you hear? Can I I give you just quick advice on how to answer that question when you hear it? Or even if you're asking it yourself. There's two answers to that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Number one, we live in a fallen world. And saved people are not exempt from, from the consequences of living in a fallen world. Okay, so saved people will get sick because of sin. And saved people will will, will be hurt and betrayed because they live in a fallen world. Saved people will suffer violence and tragedy. Okay, that's the first explanation. Number two, saying that bad things shouldn't happen to good people is actually implying that somehow we're good people. Undeserving of bad things. The thought opposes Paul's writing to the Romans where he said there's none righteous or good. No, not one. There's only one time in history that something entirely bad has happened to somebody entirely good. You know when that was? This is what you tell your friends. It's when Jesus, who is entirely good, was crucified for your sin, which is entirely bad. So it's actually a question of entitlement, but... But that's how you reason out in your mind when you're asking that question. That's basically what Asaph asked in the latter part of verse 1. But he asked another question in verse 10. Oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? So, so, So after he asked God why, he asked God this. How long? And he was concerned about time because three other times in this passage, he he uses the word forever. A time-related word. He uses the phrase, how long, in verse 9. So here's what he's saying. God, if you're not going to tell me why, then at least tell me when it's going to be over. And he touches on something that we all relate to. Because when we're suffering, time slows down, doesn't it? I snuck in a run today at the gym, and it, it never fails that that especially on a treadmill for crying out loud, those things are the, a nightmare. But but when 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 you're when you've got a, a time that, that you've set out to run and, and it's down to like the last 30 seconds and you're suffering, if you're like me, then that 30 seconds seems like it's three minutes as compared to the, the seconds before. And it's like, man, when you start when, when you start focusing on it. And you start asking, how long, how much longer, how much longer? It seems like it takes forever. And haven't you been there in the middle of your suffering? Middle of your pain, you're looking at your at your watch, so to speak, and thinking, God, how long is this going to last? But time isn't the only issue, because if God won't tell us why, and if God won't tell us when, then the next natural question to ask is this, God, are you even alive? Where are you? Are you even there? Do you even... Care because all I seem to be hearing on the other side of the line is silence. All I seem to be seeing from you is inactivity. That's where Asaph got. Look at verse 11. Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. Could you imagine telling God that? Our way of saying it would be this, God, get your hands out of your pockets. Would you do something for me? Why are you inattentive? Why are you late? Why are you withdrawn? Why are you not present? Why are you doing nothing on my behalf? Here's the point. If questions, watch here, please. If questions are the soul's natural response to pain, and if God recorded some of his choicest men asking honest questions during their times of suffering, which, by the way, includes Jesus, the Son of God. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? If he has recorded that in scripture, then getting alone with God and asking him our questions must do something good for our heart. Your questions, friend, are no surprise to God. They're not offensive to God. God knows that they're your soul's natural response to pain and they're a reflexive way of protection and healing. Now here's where we have to be careful. We should be honest to God with our questions, but still worshipful. Do you remember how I I mentioned a few minutes ago that when we sprain our ankle, our body's reflux is to rush fluids to the area and cause a swelling? Do you, you remember when I said that? You know that that's the truth. That's natural. But our bodies, in response to the trauma, tend to overdo that reaction, don't they? And so medically, what are we told to do? Control the swelling with ice, maybe pressure. Watch, in the same way, we may overreact to our pain and overdo the questions at times. No, they're natural. Whys are natural. How longs are natural. God, where are you? That's natural. But if we're not careful, our natural inclination will become uh, too much. That's why you can't stop with asking your questions. That's only where your worship through grief begins. You must then continue by articulating your pain. In other words, you have to learn to give expression to that which grieves you. You have to learn how to open your heart to God and let it out, so to speak. Now, that's going to be hard for some people. It is. It's going to be hard for some people because most of us Might have been raised by good parents who wanted to teach us how to handle the difficulties of life. And so they didn't let us cry for every little thing. And rightfully so. Can I give you a parenting lesson that I'm learning? Parents who let their kid cry about everything teach their kids to cry about everything. Say it again for those in the back. Parents who let their kids cry about everything are teaching their kids to cry about everything. We don't need any more snowflakes. We've gotten enough snow already. But here's what happens is we're trying to make our kids tough. We suppress their tenderness. Tell them hi for me. Here's what we do, parents. I've done this myself. In an effort to get our kids to be able to walk through the little difficulties of life without melting down, so that when the big difficulties of life come, they don't melt down. We go to the other extreme. And in actual areas in which there should be brokenness and tenderness, we demand toughness. Here is the byproduct of that. And a lot of us might have been raised unintentionally that way. Here's the byproduct of that. We condition our kids to suppress what they feel. Another byproduct that leaks into their relationship with the Lord because even with the Lord, who should they, they should be able to cast all their care upon the Lord. They have been conditioned to not cast their care upon anybody. But what's inside here? They keep it inside here. But the laments of the Bible, I believe they encourage the articulation of our pain. Not complaining, not whining, and not just to anyone. But the Bible encourages us to worshipfully and honestly articulate the realities of our heart to God. Because worshipful prayer, I believe, is the release valve of the heart during grief. Psalm 74, I think he models this. And we're going to study a little bit of history in the next few verses. But I think it's going to help us to understand what articulating your pain feels like. Especially for those out there tonight who tend to suppress it. Who think that you're a tough guy. And you don't do that stuff. Who who were raised to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. For some of you, you had parents that frankly you wanted to vent to them, but they didn't listen. You suppressed not, not because they told you to get tough, but because they never listened to you in the first place. You had no one to talk to. And so I want you to learn a lesson on how to articulate your pain to God. If you're not so natural at articulating your pain, look at verse number three. It's an important verse. Lift up thy feet under the perpetual desolations. Even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary, probably by now in the message you're wondering, why is he even lamenting? Maybe I should have told you a long time ago. But I think this gives us a little bit of insight into what brought the grief into Asaph and the people of God's life. There seems to have been, in my study at least, a natural disaster. The evidence of it suggests that that they may have occurred this natural disaster may have occurred when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the wicked king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and sieged it. And what they say was 586 B.C. The result was the total de- devastation of the city and the temple. I can't for sure say that's what it was. I think that's what it was, but it was something at least like that. Now, it might be difficult for you in 2020, United States of America, to understand why this would have been devastating for the Israelites of that day. So I want you in your mind, if you would, to picture that you go home tonight and the first thing you see when you turn on the TV is an ash-laden, bombed out, burned out crater where the White House stands. What would such a reality evoke from your heart? Even when you, if you were alive then and old enough to realize what was going on in 2001, what, what, what emotions were evoked in your heart when you saw those, those jets flying into the World Trade Centers? Do you remember that? Remember where you were? If we saw that somebody had successfully attacked our White House and, and, and it literally it was, was ash laden, I want you to time what you would feel times 10 You know why? Because the temple wasn't just a building to these people. Their city wasn't just geographical land. I mean, to to Israel, this was all things God. It was God's people. It was God's covenant. It was God's promise. It was God's purpose. It was God's vision. It was the glory of God. It was God's plan through them and it lay in ashes. It was devastating. And so he goes on in verse 4 and begins to get into more detail. Because that's what you do when you articulate your pain. You get specific. By an enemy's roar in the midst of thy congregation, they set up their in signs for signs. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about how the wicked Babylonians, those soldiers, went in and they ransacked the Holy of Holies. And so he's envisioning that they did this. They, they, they stuck out their chest in pride. A soldier would raise his arms in victory and he would cry victory. He would roar it like a lion at the top of his lungs. It was like willful defiance. And it gets worse because he said that those same enemies, they hung up signs in the temple. That would have been like nationalistic banners, military banners. It it would have been blasphemous to the people of God. It would be be like like, uh, some radical Islam uh, religion coming in here and and destroying all of this, taking down the forward banners and putting up their nationalistic banners of their false gods. That would be defilement. He goes on, he expresses his pain about the destruction. Look at verse 5 and 6. A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. But now they break down the card work thereof at once with axes and hammers. Do you you get what he's saying? He's saying at, at some point the men who built the temple became famous because it was so ornate. It was so beautiful. I mean, if you go study how Solomon's temple was built, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And the men that built it were famous for doing so. The temple was a renowned piece of work. But now men have come in and they've taken their hatchets and they've taken their axes and they have just absolutely hacked away at the woodwork and the gold and the silver. Everything that made up that beautiful building. And it gets worse. He says in the next verse, they, they set it on fire. I can remember walking in this building shortly after we moved in and it was it was real early I felt like I got a maybe a text from brother Sid or something Um, I can't remember but but I came in and we walked into the auditorium and the sound booth had been totally destroyed all the soundtracks were thrown out CD player was ripped out uh, microphones back there stretched out we walked into other portions of the building projectors have been pulled out of the ceiling up there in the J12 room and other parts of the building and, and, and I'm telling you I was infuriated I was so upset like I felt like someone defiled the house of God like it upset me but at least they didn't pour gasoline all over the floors dad and set a match to it could you imagine that? We put all the work into 310 West Pancake, transforming it from a vacant grocery store building to this amazing facility of worship. And then somebody not just come and destroy it and put their nationalistic signs on the wall, but they set a match to it. All the giving that you put forth to build this building, all the elbow grease you put in this building, it lays in ashes. Would you not be devastated? That's exactly what he feels. And so at the end of all this, church, when all the flames, they're not flickering anymore. And the sound of the axes, they're, you can't hear it anymore. The, the banners are no longer waving in the temple. At the end of all of that, what did God's people hear from God? Silence. Look at verse 9. We see not our signs. There's no more any prophet. Neither there is there among us any that knoweth how long. That that expression, signs, is the same exact Hebrew word that was used in verse number four that designated the nationalistic and military signs that the enemy had placed up. They're saying, God, where's our signs? They're not talking about a banner. They're they're talking about a divinely divinely chosen or sent sign from God, like, like a prophet. Or a miraculous sign that would testify that God is concerned about his people, but they say, God, we have no signs no proof that you're anywhere near there's not even a prophet and they shouldn't be surprised god told them in amos 8:11 there's going to be famine not of bread not of water but of hearing the word of the lord and that's the worst kind of famine you can endure when god withdraws his voice from you now you may be asking yourself why bother with all this historical detail i'm not a jew perhaps in the 6th century before christ I've never been to Jerusalem, maybe. I've never seen Solomon's temple. Well, let me tell you why I went through that. Number one, I want you to understand the Bible. But number two, though you may not be a Jew in the 6th century before Christ, you will eventually need to articulate your pain that comes in your own devastating seasons of life. In an application, here's what I found that, that, that we struggle with in seeking to articulate our pain. We seem to go to one of two extremes. Watch me, please don't miss this. We may misapply or overstate our situation. That's one extreme. I'm talking about this. We use extreme language like like the words devastation to label our situation when really our situation isn't devastating. I want to be gentle here, but firm here at the same time. The result of that is we have no words left at our disposal when true devastation strikes. Then the people around us treat the moments of genuine devastation just if we train them to respond all along. They roll their eyes. Like the boy who cried wolf, but there was no wolf. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Our overused and misapplied words may leave us unable to articulate in meaningful ways the true devastation that comes in our life. So listen, please listen in articulating your pain. Not everything's a crisis. Don't wear people down by making mountains out of molehills. I don't want to tell you to just pull yourself up by the bootstraps every time. But listen, sometimes you need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Sometimes you don't need to label your situation as devastation. On the other hand, we go awry because we fail to articulate the reality of our pain. We've been told to deal with it. We've been told to suck it up. We've been told to be quiet and do our job. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. So then we've never been able to acquire, watch here, and develop an emotional vocabulary. Did you just hear me? Some of you don't have an emotional vocabulary. That means when your spouse actually wants to talk to you about something deeper than the score of the game, you have no idea how to carry on that conversation. And let alone pray and worship God in your grief, articulating clearly what you feel. You have no vocabulary for that. It's been off limits your whole life. You've never developed or learned that kind of communication. You know what the result is in your worship life, in your prayer life? Unclear lament. Ineffective grief. You just suppress it because you don't know how to talk about it. Do you see the danger of both extremes? Overreacting and underreacting. Overstating and not stating at all. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to be honest with the facts and at the same time open with God. You do not have to grieve perfectly. David taught us that in the Psalms. But you do, if you want to worship as you grieve, you have to think, is this honest to my situation? And i and I'm being open enough to God to actually use this as a release valve for my heart. The last two points are quick. It's the third way we engage in worshipful grief is to acknowledge God's past. Now, if this seems repetitious to you, it's because it is. Do you notice that nearly every sermon on the book of Psalms I preach, there's some kind of point that causes us to go back to what God did for us yesterday. So he'll do the same for us today. I, I, I feel silly in some ways re-preaching it, but I would have to skip sections of the text to not touch. To, if I wanted to skip, I'm not going to skip it. It's that necessary. Here, here's why it's important for us to remember, because memory is sometimes all we have when it comes to worship. I think memory is sometimes the true worshiper's best friend. Because in the moments when God doesn't feel near, when it feels like he's cast you off, in the moments where you're looking at your watch and saying, God, how long? Even in the moments where you're saying, God, are you even alive The only thing you have to go and to keep you from becoming a total atheist or a backslidden Christian is the fact that God has done something for you in the past. And Asaph mentions two things that no matter how desperate of situation you find yourselves in, you will always be able to go back to these two things. Look at verse number uh, 12. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of the levithon. You can go study that weird animal in your own time. in pieces and gave us him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain in the flood. Thou driest up mighty rivers. The day is thine. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. What are the two things that Asaph remembered that he can go back to? Here are the two things. How God delivered his people out of Egypt. And took him to the promised land. And number two, how God created and now sustains the world. What does that mean for the modern worshiper? Watch here, please. You haven't been delivered out of Egyptian bondage, but you have been set free from your sin if you're saved. What is one thing that you can always point back to in the past? to give you assurance that God loves you and God is for you and, and God will show up on your behalf and work on your behalf even if the moment it doesn't feel like he is. I'll tell you the one thing you can always go back to, your salvation. You, Once you are saved, you never get unsaved. That is the one thing. You can go back to the cross every day if you have to to remind yourself that God is faithful. And you can go back to creation. So long as you're alive, you can look in the mirror and know God's sustaining me. You understand what it takes? What it takes for your heart to keep beating on a daily basis? I mean, the, the, the mental capacities that, that are triggering, the things that are triggering your mind right now to get you to even sit up straight and listen to me, it's crazy. And God is doing all of that. See, the Old Testament says he created the world. But the New Testament makes the point that he keeps it in place. So while you're devastated, guess what's happening? Summer comes and goes. Winter comes and goes. Came a little too early this year. Spring comes and goes. The sun, it comes up and it goes down. The stars still shine. The moon is still in place. And so... If you're devastated and you might be, and I've been there, and you need something to go back to, go out at nighttime and look up at the sky and say, God must still be alive because the stars haven't fallen. And by the way, if the stars fall on planet Earth, we're in trouble. Do you get my idea? Asaph's saying, if I can't remember anything else in my point of bitterness, in my point of grief, in my point of confusion, in my point of distance from God, if I can't remember anything else or recall anything else, I can always remember my salvation. I can always remember God's creation. And those two things alone are enough to declare him faithful for all eternity. Amen. You can worship for a long time on those two things. God saved you and God sustains you. And I'll close with the last point. Ask for God's intervention. Asaph asked God to remember two things. He said, God, remember your people and remember your enemies. We won't read the verses, Miss Tammy. But basically in verses 2, verse 19, verse 20 of our text, he says, God, remember the covenant you made with us. God, would you intervene for us? This is called supplication. Church, look at me real quick. You need to learn how to ask God to meet your needs. It's okay. Hannah did the same thing. God, remember thy handmaid. Remember thy servant. She couldn't get pregnant. That's what she said. Remember me. And it's okay to call upon God to remember you. God, see me in my situation. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. Some of God's people stay in their season of grief longer than God wanted to keep them in their season of grief. They never asked God for comfort. They ran from God. They never asked God why. They never consulted with God. They left church. They blame God. They're angry. Don't do that. Say, God, I don't understand why your faithfulness in the past hasn't showed up today. So please remember me. See my marriage. God, it stinks right now. Remember it. God, when you're holding the stars in place... Will you take a look at my bank account, please? God, when you're making sure my heart beats, if you get me out of bed tomorrow, will you please make my car run? God, will you remember the medical bill that I just got in the mail? God, will you please remember the covenant you made with me that you will never leave me or forsake me? God, please, do you get what I'm saying? And then you remember, say, God, remember mine enemies, Asaph said. In other words, if your grief surrounds a person, which a lot of times grief does, you're hurt, you're betrayed, whatever the case might be, a marriage went bad, a kid hurt you, whatever the case might be. If, if, if your bitterness or grief surrounds a person, then you need to pray an imprecatory prayer around that person. What's an imprecatory prayer? They're all through the Psalms. It's in Psalm 74. Here's what is an imprecatory prayer. You're leaving vengeance to God. Imprecatory prayers on the behalf of your enemies is a protection from you remaining bitter. And taking things into your own hand. And so don't be afraid to say, God, will you deal with them in your righteous anger? In your righteous judgment? It doesn't mean that you're calling down fire from heaven necessarily. You're just releasing them to God. And you can do it bluntly. You can do it boldly. So Asaph has taught us how to pray worshipfully while we're grieving. It starts with, asking your questions, it continues with articulating your pain and then acknowledging God's past and and then asking God to intervene. Church, that's how you grieve well. When you grieve as worship. As I close, I want to remind you that that I think the essence of of my burden tonight is this grief is an invitation to worship. Yet I found that, that many times It's grief that keeps God's people from worship. But this psalm and a lot of other places of scripture teaches, hear me please. Our deepest encounters with God come wrapped in the deepest pains of life. Listen, you don't get deep with God by standing in the shallow end of convenience and comfort. You get deep with God when you get in the deep end of pain and the deep end of confusion and the deep end of brokenness. And I'm not inviting that on anybody's life, but that is part of of the growing Christian's life. And some of you who have walked and you have swam, you have treaded water in the deep end for months and years. In many different seasons of life, I want to remind you, That you do not have to grieve perfectly. You never will. But you can grieve well. When you grieve worshipfully. You agree with the Bible? Say amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.